Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this Friday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut today. We've got a whole lot of Georgia political news to sift through today, starting with the new details of Governor Kemp's plan to shore up Grady Hospital in downtown Atlanta. We'll also discuss fundraising in Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional district, the Fulton DA's investigation, and Stacey Abrams' effort to bring to build support among Black men. Here to unpack all of it with me is a great panel, starting with my colleague Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent for the AJC. And Tia, Congress is back from its August recess. They're only in town for a little bit before they break for the rest of the campaign season. What are you keeping your eye on these days? Well, you know, as far as like what could actually get done in the next couple of weeks, the only thing is something to avert, you know, a government shutdown because Right now, government is only funded through the end of the month. We know they'll do that because nobody wants to shut down right before a huge election. Um, but other than that, you know, there's a lot of talking about abortion, same-sex marriage, uh, of course, immigration and the outrage over buses of, of immigrants being dropped off in random places. But we don't think any of that will lead to legislation, just funding the government. <laughs> yes, and especially in the House when all 435 members are up for re-election in November, nobody wants to do anything to mess with their chances to to get re-elected. Next, we have Leo Smith, a Republican consultant and president of the Engaged Futures Group. Welcome back, Leo. It's always good to be with you, Tamara, and uh, in Hokie land, we'll do better. <laughs> and and later in the show, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the work you've been doing with the Carter Center and uh, rebuilding trust in elections. So I'm really excited to dive in on that. Back on the show, we have Howard Franklin. He's a Democratic consultant and president and CEO of Ohio River South. And Howard, you're always involved in about a trillion issues at any given moment. So what's on your mind these days? Uh, yeah, you're right. Um so much is going on. I mean, it's obviously the, the end of summer and the beginning of fall, but I think legislative discussion have already started to ramp up for the 2023 session. You know, as you mentioned, there are a lot of big issues at the local level, too, that we're paying uh, close attention to. Looking forward to discussing them all on the show today. Absolutely. And last but not least, we have the chief, my former colleague, Jim Galloway, longtime political reporter at the AJC who's retired or semi-retired. He always seems to be writing something interesting or at least working on some really cool woodworking projects. Um, Jim, you have an event that you are uh, planning to attend later today at Stone Mountain. What's going on there? Yeah, we're, we're the, the, the Stone Mountain Association and uh, DeKalb CEO Michael Thurman, they're in a, they've got a, a ceremony. Uh, 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 dedicating a a 131 year old covered bridge that had been has been trucked in and means from Athens where it where it uh, crossed the Oconee River, uh, and the thing is it it was it was it was built by the son of a former slave, Washington W. King. Uh, who who built just dozens of, of bridges during that during the post war era uh, covered bridges uh, around Georgia and the southeast and it, what, the importance of this is that it's it's it, it's it, it's kind of the first big piece of history that doesn't have to do with the Confederate Confederacy on, on at at the park and it's uh, it's part of quite frankly Thurman's uh, effort to 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 diversify uh, uh, the the messages that come out of that that place you know the, the, we're uh, the, we've been promised some some reforms of, uh, when it comes to the overemphasis on the on on Confederate messaging at Stone Mountain haven't seen much uh, much happen there yet uh, presumably because it is an election year uh, but but uh, I, I think that that makes that co the, this covered bridge a little even more significant Significant. Well, what a cool event, and it's it's great that uh, you'll be there, and hopefully we'll, we'll hear more from you on that later. Now, before we dive into Georgia political stories, I'd like to take a moment, Tia, to discuss the latest development 
in the fight over Trump's classified documents. Last night, we saw a federal judge, Eileen Cannon, um, who appointed a special master to review the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago in August. And she rejected a push from the Justice Department to continue its inquiry into whether the former president unlawfully retained national defense records or obstructed attempts to by federal officers to retrieve those documents. Now, TIA DOJ plans to appeal, which will bring the case to Atlanta in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, but this decision from Judge Cannon really delays things for the Justice Department. I mean, the special master has 11,000 documents to, to sift through now. Yeah, um, and the judge gave um, Trump's attorneys a lot of what they wanted. She was appointed by President Trump. A lot of Democrats kind of don't really trust that she's coming at this in a truly impartial manner. And, of course, her decision is not going to change their minds because, you know, she uh, did accept one of the special masters that Trump's attorneys had recommended. And, again, she agreed that while the special master is reviewing all these thousands of documents, the Justice Department really can't do anything with them. And that could create a huge delay because it's going to take a lot of time um, to go through them. So you're right. It's, it's, it's going to be appealed, which is still a risk. But um, it's just really interesting as we watch this unfold. As You know, we got to remember we're talking about government documents, possibly high-level secrets that were found at former President Trump's Florida home. Yeah. And Jim, the Justice Department got a little bit of what it wanted, a teeny bit of what it wanted in that Judge Cannon directed the special master to examine a hundred of like the most classified documents first. So I guess that's a, a partial win for the Justice Department. Maybe if he gets that stuff out of the way, then they can move on a little sooner, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's um this is this is it, it's become this is becoming a fairly overt case of of judicial shopping i i think uh uh the suit was filed in a in, in a judicial district that only has one judge uh and so there was no question of of who it would go before and it, it kind of reminds me you know uh, i i don't want to uh, i i don't want to uh dump a whole lot of history on people but you know when, when the voting rights act was enacted in 1965 one of the key provisions was that all lawsuits arising from the voting rights act would be heard and decided in the dc circuit because because they didn't trust the local federal judges to be on board with 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 segregation, and and it it, it, it kind of this 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 whole episode harkens back to that period, I think. Uh, and this judge, I believe, was nominated and confirmed in November 2020. Like right, right after Trump was defeated. After after Trump was defeated, yes. And the 11th Circuit, notoriously conservative. Um, I believe it's something mm -hmm. six out of the 11 judges were appointed by the Trump administration. Um, obviously that doesn't necessarily, you know, we don't know how they're going to rule on this, but still, um, they, they picked probably as friendly a jurisdiction as they could in the federal appeals court. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's, uh, we'll keep an eye on that and let's move on now to, uh, Georgia news. Uh, Leo, let's, uh, begin with yesterday's big announcement from Governor Kemp pledging $130 million to bolster Greedy Hospital in downtown Atlanta. Um, that money will go toward building nearly 200 additional hospital beds over the next year. Um, they are trying to, to kind of backfill some of the beds that were lost at the Atlanta Medical Center when that closes in six weeks. Leo, the governor says that's more than enough capacity to cover the patients from, from the Atlanta Medical Center. Uh, but still, the closure of that hospital leaves a giant hole in the middle of, of Old Fourth Ward in downtown Atlanta and really leaves Grady as, as kind of the last place that can handle the, the highest level of trauma care. No, no doubt. I mean, this uh, the impact of those closings is, is going to be felt for a very long time. And the, the governor is, is right and good to be very responsive and immediate and bringing resources that uh, good fiscal management has provided uh, through his leadership. And I'm sure that's what he's going to hearken on as he continues to campaign, that his conservative management of our budget allows him to be responsive in this way and that he's addressing the issue, of course, along with uh, South Georgia hospital closings as well and looking at innovative ways to address that. 
Howard, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Uh, Wellstar's decision to close Atlanta Medical Center shocked stakeholders, including Mayor Dickens, who you advise. Um, and talk a little bit, if you can kind of pull back the curtain on, on how that news was received at City Hall and really the options that the mayor has, if any, in a situation like this. Yeah, sure. I'll just point out, um, you know, while uh, Leo's heaping praise on our governor, that those dollars, um, ARPA dollars, uh, really put forward because of Democrats control Congress, um, the, or the the basis for those dollars, not necessarily uh, raising the cookie jar at the, uh, the, the state's reserves. But I, I, I think, you know, the, the governor deserves credit for springing into action. It's, it's worth noting that uh, public health is strictly the purview of the county and the state. And so, you know, I also want to commend our mayor for also jumping into the fray, uh, taking meetings with, with stakeholders who have a lot of uh, obviously very important interest here. You can't say enough. You can't overstate that the entire public health system is still reeling from COVID-19. You know, the Grady itself is already in the red because of a number of the strains were put on the hospital system. And so there's just a ton of implications for the hospital's closure. And not only just the things that I've gone over, but also some of the real estate and public safety um, concerns about a 25-acre campus now being allowed to lie fallow for, you know, how we don't know exactly how long. So the, the news was a shock. I know that a number of folks, including county leaders, have really sprung into action trying to figure out exactly what they can do. Is there another system that will step in? Is there another, you know, highest and best use? For this location, but I can tell you, everybody's kind of shoulder to shoulder and uh, sleeves rolled up. And I know the mayor has has written letters, kind of asking Wellstar to explain itself. But is there really much he can do other than to try and kind of manage the damage here? You know, it's really funny. I'm on a, on a bunch of calls about exactly what the options are, and you'd be surprised. There there are some that avail uh, themselves to the administration, um, really in guiding what ultimately uh, takes the place of the healthcare system. But everything I've heard um, seems to suggest that there isn't any hope of saving Wellstar as the operator for the Atlanta Medical Center. And that, you know, most of the, the conversation I've heard has really been looking forward to what can replace it as that operator and how much public health benefit it can offer uh, to Old Fourth Ward, you know, uh, Midtown Atlanta and to the city of Atlanta as a whole. Jim? Yeah, and look, uh, no one wants to spit at $130 million. Uh, I mean, it is a lot of money, and and it will do a lot of good. Uh, but I think we have to do no, no, two things about this is, is, number one, this is basically for capital outlay. It's not for operations. It's not for year-to-year -year operations, which, which is where the, the real expense of health care comes from. So, so it, 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 while, while, while Governor Kemp says this isn't a Band-Aid, it doesn't address the, the, the major systemic problem that, 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 uh, that, operating, that, that consists, uh, comes with operating a tr level one trauma center. And the other part is that because, like, like, like uh, as, uh, as was pointed out, this is, this is essentially one-time federal money. Uh, it continues the uh, kind of the, the 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 state policy of not investing directly into uh, into healthcare facilities in Atlanta. I mean that was the that was back in the day uh, when 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 we had a crisis over the over uh, Grady Hospital's finances. Uh, that was that was that was an option that the state chose not to not to not to do. Uh, it, it took a, a kind of a, a an alliance of. Uh, of uh, philanthropic organizations to pull Grady out financially. And that's apparently that's where we're headed for this time too. Uh, Medicaid and, and obviously no one has, we, we haven't discussed here how, how Medicaid expansion might fit into this. Yeah, and that perfectly tees up my next question for Tia. Obviously, this has become quickly become an issue on the campaign trail. You see Stacey Abrams really hitting Governor Kemp, you know, for, for saying how expanding Medicaid would have really helped the situation. Wellstar has said that, no, it's way more complicated than that. Just expanding Medicaid wouldn't have, have fixed the situation. But, but talk a little bit about how you think this is going to continue to play out in these final two months on the trail. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's nuance on both sides. Um, it's not black and white, but I don't know if anyone with a straight face can say, oh, yeah, millions, if not billions of dollars to help us wouldn't have, you know, if nothing else, maybe 
allowed them to hold on a little bit longer and things like that. Like, I just don't think with a straight face, Wellstar can say the influx of cash, the reduction of uncompensated care would not have made some kind of difference. Now I get what they're saying that it may not have long-term been able to save the hospital for the same reasons Jim just mentioned, that it really has to do with like aging facilities that cost a whole lot of money to upkeep. Um, that being said, it would have done something. And it's not just uh, Atlanta Medical Center we're talking about. I think it's what, four hospitals in Georgia that have closed in recent years. So, you know, level one trauma centers, the fact that Georgia um, is losing another one. And um, there are pockets of the state where people have to travel a long bit for an emergency room, let alone if they truly have a complicated um, medical emergency. And that's something that, again, I'm not saying Medicaid expansion would solve it all, but it would create some money there to help keep some of these facilities open or perhaps incentivize these companies to want to open new ones. Um, Howard, we'll bring you back to the conversation in a second. But, Leo, before we get too far past this, I did want to ask about kind of how Governor Kemp is maneuvering in this situation. He really has continued to hold the line. He's not interested in full Medicaid expansion. He has this waiver that he's continuing to pursue. Um, Howard mentioned the governor has been able to really benefit from this COVID relief package that Democrats in Congress passed that Republicans like him had opposed. Um where does he go from here? And do you think his strategy is the right one when, you know, as he, he goes on the trail and has to deal with this? No, I think his overall strategy is to make sure that he doesn't interfere too much with, um, you know, one, the hospital executives' own decisions to manage the market forces impacting medical care. That's one thing. But he's also trying to look at how to manage the expectations of Georgians and Understanding that this is a larger thing than just Georgia. This is a national shift that's happening where hospitals are struggling to meet the demands. And so certainly federal dollars would be a way to address that because much of what we're dealing with is because of federal policy out of Congress on how we deal with um, indigent health care, different sorts of things like that, how that's compensated, health insurance. Of course, this is a very nuanced thing. And the idea of being able to create a condition when it comes to these changes that's sustainable versus something that, you know, is a one-time fix and then puts us into um, a, a place where we're overburdened when it comes to taxes. Um, that's consistent in Republican leadership and conservative fiscal policy. So I think he's doing what conservative voters expect him to do. And the big shift is, is that hospitals are not, you know, sort of responsive in the, I mean, or actually are not having the demand uh, in South Georgia and other places. So telemedicine is going to be a big innovative shift that's going to have to be addressed um, in the industry. And, and so we have to look at that. We have changing things happening now in the nation and rural um, the places are going to have to figure out other ways to get service medically. And that's a shift we're going to have to respond to. Howard. Yeah. I just want to say uh, briefly that, you know, this is a reminder that 10 years ago, uh, the Georgia chamber and a number of others uh, launched a campaign to expand the trauma care network across the state of Georgia and at the time, the focus was down I-75 and I-16. I worked on that campaign. Unfortunately, it was not successful. But I think, you know, the, the loss of AMC in the center of, it, of the city of Atlanta is definitely going to, you know, focus some additional attention on really strengthening uh, Georgia's trauma care network. Howard, well, you have the ball. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the politics here for, for Democratic leaders. We talked a little bit about what Stacey Abrams is doing, but also at this event yesterday with the governor standing right with him, we saw Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts. We saw Michael Thurmond, uh, the, the CEO of DeKalb County, the, their county's jointly own Grady. Um, but kind of the way that they talked about this was a little bit different. Um, you saw Rob Pitts talk about trying to open a new hospital in South Fulton and kind of praising the bipartisanship that's taken place since AMC announced the closure, whereas Thurman talked a lot about fighting against gun violence so that places like Grady had fewer patients to, to treat. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, that particular photo op came together quickly. I, I, can, I can say it with a high degree of confidence. You know, obviously those are 
are the leaders of stakeholders for Grady. And they, they've obviously got, you know, their own priorities in terms of not only keeping the system healthy because it's going through its own challenges, but also um, they are the fiduciary supporters, right? Fulton County and DeKalb County pony up uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and have over the years to Grady Hospital. I know there's also a lot of discussion about whether or not Fulton, uh, which is dealing with some budget issues right now in DeKalb County, can spend even more to prop Grady up and to make sure that it's a, you know, it's a, um, a, a healthy, um, you know, hospital system for Metro Atlanta. So, I, you, but you're right about the politics. Obviously, um, Leader Abrams has talked a lot about Medicaid expansion and what that might have done uh, to, you know, keep this this hospital system open longer. And to Tia's earlier point, you know, people make a lot of comparisons. I think that uh, Jim did as well to the, you know, the the campaign to save Grady when it ran into all sorts of fiscal issues. And one of the things that keeps coming up in those discussions that I've heard is that Grady gave enough run room or runway for the philanthropic community, for the political community to come together and really present a holistic a solution. And it also went through a lot of political, you know, machinations as well. Unfortunately, Wellstar didn't give, you know, these, these same political actors and stakeholders nearly enough time to come up with a solution that might have found a way to save this hospital system. All right. And Jim, I have one more question for you before we move on to the next topic. State officials are hoping to line up as much as $50 or sorry, $50 million <laughs> in philanthropic <laughs> donations um, to, to help bolster Grady. But they're still in the midst of trying to secure that funding. Obviously, Fulton leaders hoping to develop a new hospital in South Fulton. But it could take years to be able to, to develop stuff like that. It could take a decade. Uh, talk a little take, bit about that. Yeah, it could take decades. And first of all, I would I would point out that 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 uh, uh, Wellstar just closed a, a hospital uh, over down in East Point, uh, and when it closed that hospital, it promised that uh, that AMC, which we used to know as as Georgia Baptist, that uh, AMC would would take up the slack, and now that that hospital is is gone. So I mean, again, this is you know. It, relying on uh, philanthropic organizations to supply, and I'm guessing this is a $50 million a year revenue stream that would be required. Not to, Again, not just a one-time one -time, uh, fundraising uh, payment. Uh, that, is, that is a real heavy lift that I, I would think is going to take years to put together, several years to put together. Um, and and uh, again, what to, to Howard's point, uh, the, that lack of runway is is really really hurting us right now. Absolutely. Well, we need to hit our first break here, but when we come back, I'm so excited to dive into Tia's really awesome story about fundraising in, in, the, in the 14th congressional district. So stay with us. We'll be right back with more political rewind. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. Our panel today is former AJC political columnist Jim Galloway, Democratic consultant Howard Franklin, Republican consultant Leo Smith, and Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent for the AJC. Let's dive right back into our discussion. Tia, over the last few days, uh, you published a great new piece about fundraising in the 14th Congressional District up in northwest Georgia, home of Marjorie Taylor Greene. You report about how she and her Democratic opponent, Marcus Flowers, have taken advantage of this cycle of outrage and over-the-top statements and more outrage and using that to fundraise just staggering amounts of money. Um, Flowers, a, a relatively unknown candidate, has been able to raise something like $10.7 million in, in, since June or, or up until June, and Marjorie Taylor Greene almost as much. Tell us a little more. Yeah, it was just very interesting as me and um, other colleagues at the AJC, of course, we're always looking at campaign finance records and we're covering these elections. And to see the amount of money flowing in District 14 balloon 
Like, by comparison, District 2 in Southwest Georgia is the competitive congressional race. And Sanford Bishop raised a little under $2 million. His The Republicans combined in this hotly contested primary combined raised about $2 million. And and that's a race that actually is competitive in November. And you've got in Marjorie Taylor Greene and Marcus Flowers, between them have already raised more than $20 million in a race that is not expected to be competitive. And that doesn't mean you can't run. People, long shot candidates run all the time. But what really got me to wanting to do this article is there's a long shot candidate. Marjorie Green is very controversial. So she raises a lot of money because of her controversies. This long shot candidate is able to raise a lot of money on Marjorie Taylor Greene's controversies. And but it's still very likely Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to win. But the true thing is that when you look at, well, what are they spending all this money that they're raising? And they're spending it on the fundraising itself, over half. And what that means is the fundraisers, the consultants, are making a lot of money off of this outrage, off of this political apparatus. It is not going to try to convince voters. That's not what they're spending all this money on. They're really spending the money on um, consultants, fundraisers, people who get paid off of drumming up all these controversies. So it's not even about green and flowers. They're just an example of what money in American politics is and how that helps to fuel this partisanship. It actually, the reason why politics is so partisan is because people are making a whole lot of money off of it. That's one of the, I'll say one of the reasons why. And it's something that voters should really be cognizant of and um, really pay attention to. And there's a great statistic, Jim, I pulled from Tia's story. Uh, for Marjorie Taylor's Greene's uh, fundraising, or sorry, the amount of money she spent through June, some $5 million of the $8 million she spent went into fundraising consultants or digital ads to raise more money. And this isn't something that's unique to this race, though, that it's become very common in large political campaigns. Right, right. And this is this is a, a couple of things just to, to, to slip in here. This is a 60-40 Republican district. I mean, uh, Marcus Flowers would have to pick up 20 points. I mean, or, uh, uh, 12, 12 or 13 points just to just to carry this district, which is which is highly unlikely. Most of this money is coming from out of state from people who don't know that this is not a competitive district. They're just operating on on what they know of Marjorie Taylor Greene and what they don't like about Marjorie Taylor Greene. And 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 T is absolutely right. This is this is uh I, I don't want to call it a scam because it's it's entirely legal. But it is it is it is one of the 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 better kept secrets of uh politics that uh that uh, that a lot that that these big numbers these this oh I've raised ten million dollars or I raised twenty million dollars. The best part of that is to be able to say that you raised ten million dollars or twenty million dollars, uh, and it, to to be able to say that it's going to cost you half of that money, maybe five million dollars, uh, and uh, it, it's uh, it is uh, it, it it's very worrying. We know some other numbers to kind of highlight here. Um, Flowers is paying himself a pretty nice salary, $5,000 a month. Green spent more than $92,000 on a Buick SUV to take her to campaign stops. Lots of administrative salary overhead expenses. And as Jim said, all of it's legal. No, no, no. I think Tia's um, perspective is, is very important. And that is one of the things that is weakening our democracy, as a matter of fact, that we do have a political industry that is um, necessarily in a vicious cycle where it has to sustain itself. Candidate becomes not viable, but 
the political consultants truly do want to keep making money, and then candidates figure out this is also a way to make money and to become not only popular and famous, but uh, also become wealthy. This is an issue that has to be addressed if we're going to make our democratic republic more resilient. And, you know, when we talk about a commonwealth need like medical care, and Jim mentioned the $50 million being a heavy lift, but in our Senate race, you know, Warnock and Walker, I mean, what is it, like $190 million, I think, Howard, been spent on uh, ad campaigns already? The public is willing to send money for the things that they care about. Politics has become too much of an entertainment venue rather than a leadership venue. It has to be addressed. And obviously, money is there in the public sector to do lots of things that we need if we're spending it on politics like this. Howard, lots of of out-of-state donors, as Tia mentioned. Um, And if you're a Democrat, why would you donate to Marcus Flowers? You know, this is way more than a 60-40 district. Marjorie Taylor Greene won by about 50 points. It's one of the most conservative east of the the Mississippi. So why why are all these Democrats sending in money? Well, I think you guys made a valid point, which is um, that many of the donors don't know how competitive the races are, right? They do know the specter of NGT and some of the things she said and done on social media or on the on Congress's floor and threats that were made. So I'm going to respectfully disagree with my friend Leo Smith here. You know, there there are real threats to democracy in America today. Uh, we've been talking about a couple of them before we got to this story. You know, uh, Americans deciding that they want to spend their hard-earned money on candidates that may or may not have uh, a viable path uh, to successfully being elected is, is not one or at least doesn't rank on that list for me. But I, you know, I, I checked uh, the Cook report, Charles Cook's report this morning, just to look at how many races were rated as toss-ups. Out of 435 members of Congress, uh, you know, 435 members that are either up for re-election or have competitive races going on in their respective districts, uh, I think the number was 31, which is about 7% of Congress. So, you know, gerrymandering is one of those threats to democracy that that you know allows for folks all, all across the country to, to plow their money into races that don't look competitive because the ones in their in their home districts may not have as much, you know, fire and brimstone, might not have as much sizzle. So I, I don't I, I don't take as much issue with this as a consultant. And I think also something worth noting, you know, as you guys said, so much of the money has come from out of state. It does cost more money to uh, you know, drag dollars in from across state lines and across other congressional districts. And so some of that money is going for things like direct mail and resolicitation on television, et cetera. It's not just going in the pockets of consultants. But I, I, I totally think this is, you know, an anthem of the, uh, the sort of governance that we want, but I just don't think it ranks uh, as highly as some of the other real threats of democracy we're facing today. Tia, I think there are few people who are as much of a lightning rod as, as Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I think that in and of itself uh, you know, is an easy fundraising sell for Democrats. Yeah, and I just think, you know, again, I don't begrudge people for having strong feelings one way or the other about Marjorie Taylor Greene. There are supporters who really want to support her, but I want the people who, to, who support her to know a, one of her biggest, her biggest vendor is a company that is known to get a fee that equals 80% of what they bring in. So if if that donor is how you came to know Marjorie Taylor Greene and you give her a dollar, only 20 cents goes to Marjorie Taylor Greene. The rest of it goes to that that man's company and lets him buy a yacht or whatever he buys with it. Marcus Flowers, you can say, I really do not like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I want her out of Congress. I'm going to give my money to Marcus Flowers. And that's your right. His biggest vendor has made $3 million dollars. And that vendor says, well, we spend some of that money buying digital ads. From what I can tell, they wouldn't tell me how much. They wouldn't give me the details. But you can go on Facebook and see how much Marcus Flowers is spending on Facebook ads. He's taken out a lot of Facebook ads. But if you <laughs> add them up, we don't even get to a million dollars. We don't even get to more than, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's Facebook. But Ads, digital ads are pretty cheap. So let's say I'm going to give him, let's say he spent a million, I don't know, but let's say he spent a million dollars altogether on all these digital ads, which is a lot of money. That still means the vendor pocketed two million. So if you give Marcus Flowers a dollar, and this is just a scenario because we don't know the actual amount, but it's possible 
that you give Marcus Flowers a dollar and he only gets 33 cents. And the rest, again, goes to this company and they get to take it home. That's what we're talking about, the money in politics today. And that's what people need to think about. Where in yes, Warnock and Walker are they're raising a lot of money, but at least you can argue most of their money is being spent to try to persuade voters. They do not have the same they're not spending fifty percent on fundraising based fundraising apparatus. They're spending a lot, don't get me wrong. It's still a lot of money. You can still argue should you, you know, be spending $100 million to try to win an election? But there's a different debate on that side in that race. Jim, let's give you the final word of the segment. Well, well actually, I just want to direct a, a, a question to Howard. In, in, in a standard campaign, in a standard campaign, if, if how much, if, if you have somebody arranging a TV campaign for a candidate, what's, what's, the, standard, what, what's the standard commission on that? Is it yeah, is it ten percent? Is it fifteen percent? Fifteen percent is a traditional TV buying uh, commission, Jim. And I, I would say that for fundraising, it's typically around the twenty percent, uh, the twenty percent number. And and I just want to, I, I agree with you guys. This is obviously a tremendous amount of money for a race that we already probably know the outcome of. But again, I you know, people are making this determination. I, here's the, the, the thing that I think is a, a worthwhile distinction. You know, if you are researching the fourth congressional district and you just go to Marcus Flowers' site or you go to MGT's site and you give directly, those companies don't make money. The way that they make money is if you don't, if you are on Facebook minding your business, you get served an ad. You say this is interesting, and you follow that wormhole to giving money on a site that's set up to put aside or apportion additional dollars for the consultants, that's where the money comes in. So for the, you know, and I think the Tia's article mentioned that less than $100,000 of the, you know, what is it, 20 million bucks that we have um, that, that's been raised between these two candidates has actually come from the 14th district. And to me, that's more the travesty, that the, the national politics have usurped the interest of the district uh, constituents, and those aren't the folks who are ultimately going to have a voice. Um, by making that, you know, making these contributions that will ultimately help decide the outcome of the race. Thankfully, they do still get the vote, right? <laughs> At least there's that. Well, one last question for you, Howard, while you have the ball. You know, you mentioned the standard rate for a consultant might be like 15 or 20 percent. How do some of these fundraising consultants get away with 80 percent commissions? It's very simple. Uh, I've never heard of Marcus Flowers before this race. You know, unlike you, you guys mentioned Herschel Walker and and uh, Senator Warnock, folks who already have some standing, those consultants can come to those, you know, brand new candidates who in many cases have never run for office and say, we've built this apparatus that will allow you to pull money from across the country that you otherwise would not be able to raise. And honestly, you know, not to take this down a partisan route, but the Republican Party really uh, pioneered national fundraising through uh, direct mail well before the Democrats caught up and, and really were able to catch up on online. So really, if you are Marcus Flowers and maybe you have the prospects of raising a hundred or a couple of hundred thousand dollars to take on you know, the, the fire brand of a congresswoman and, and you've got this option, this consultant shows up and says, I can raise you millions, um, but you're only going to keep a couple of those million. Uh, that's a pretty easy decision for someone who otherwise doesn't have any standing or doesn't hold a political office. All right. Well, I'd like to, to switch topics here. And we've, we've talked a little bit about this throughout the week on the show, including yesterday with Lauren Grow Wargo, Stacey Abrams' campaign manager. But I'm so eager, given this, this panel and the work that they've done, I want to talk about the Abrams campaign and where they might be lacking when it comes to wooing black voters and specifically black men. Um, Tia, a good rule of thumb for Democrats is to get about 90 percent support among black voters. Abrams in the latest AJC poll was sitting at about 80 percent support. Um, and I'm wondering how you look at that. And is this a troubling sign for the Abrams campaign this late in the game? I'm going to be quick because I want to let the two black men on the panel really take this away. But I will say that the Republican Party has worked hard to rate to get inroads, particularly with black men, because black women are less persuadable, especially when you're talking about a black woman being the candidate for, that you're trying to persuade them against. Um, but 
even with Donald Trump, we saw black men were more likely to support Donald Trump than black women. It's just in general, black men, because of some of the messaging coming out of the Republican Party that tends to speak to black men a little bit more to black women. Um, and again, I want to let our Leo and Howard take it away from here. Leo, you've done a lot of this line on the front, you know, a lot of this work on the front lines for for the GOP reaching out, <clears throat> pardon me, to to black men. Um, talk to me about the the work, and um, you know, Stacey Abrams lately has been doing a lot, holding events with celebrities, kind of local influencer personality types to try and woo them. What, in your experience, has worked in terms of mobilizing black men, and how much of an advantage do Democrats have here? You know. It's interesting when we talk about uh, persuadable universes and, and, and voting blocks, and it's interesting how in this campaign cycle, Abrams and Kemp, we're looking at a situation where black men as voters are being equated to white suburban women when it comes to voting Democrat. And that just presents a challenge that, you know, even Donald Trump was aware that men can often get lost especially poor men, men who have been marginalized economically or in a criminal justice system. Donald Trump appealed to rural white, Appalachian, West Belt white men. Um, Donald Trump's appeal to them also addresses some of the economic concerns and woes of poor urban black men. Um, and I saw that as early as 2013 when I was doing work with the party as a strategist, and I was working on behalf of Governor Deal, and we were working on prison reform issues and issues of economic opportunity. And then when Donald Trump starts talking about, hey, we need an American first policy, black men were saying, I'm an American too. And that's why um, you saw uh, when Donald Trump ran that he got in Georgia 17% of the black male vote when he could only pull about 3% of the black woman's vote. And that was mostly an economic <coughs> issue. And so now as uh, Stacey Abrams sort of her campaign is pushing an abortion issue, the black men, 50-year-old, 40-year-old black men are still saying, that's not resonating with me. It's still a matter of can I make enough money to be a leader in my household? That's what's happening here. Howard, 17 percent, not a giant number. But when we're talking about such closely contested elections in Georgia, that could maybe make a difference. Yeah, Tamara, I, you know, I want to agree with some of what Leo said, but I do want to remind us, I want to, you know, just bring us back to earth here. I mean, the number one Democratic or demographic support group for Democrats is black women by, you know, an astonishing clip, 90 plus percent. But we all know that number two of any demographic group you could think of right behind black women still is black men. So I, I don't want to yell them blow this up. I mean, that, that, that happens to be true, whether we're talking about for Hillary Clinton or we're talking about Barack Obama or, or many other very you know, prominent and popular politicians who found some degree of success on a statewide or a national stage. So I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to downplay it, but I do want to, you know, keep our eyes focused on the fact that black men and black women still make up the, the backbone of the Democratic Party and support Democrats at rates that far outpace any other demographic group. I, I think, tomorrow your point is is uh, the one that I'd love to focus on, which is that Stacey lost in you know, 2018 by a very slim margin. She knows that improving her performance isn't going to be based upon redefining herself for millions of Georgia voters. It's going to be really improving upon these demographic groups uh, and by very small or incremental improvement, whether that is black men, whether that's rural voters, college-educated women, young people, et cetera. She knows that, you know, improving her standing one or two percentage points across these really coveted and really uh, pivotal groups in our electorate is where the win lies. And so, you know, it's smart for her, obviously, to be calling out um, the places where she knows she's going to need outsized support. Um, but I don't think it's relegated just to black men. I think the, all the groups that I've mentioned and plenty of others, uh, other minority groups are also being targeted by both parties at this point because they know we're, we're in a you know, jump ball state at this point. How concerning are those poll numbers right now among black voters? Is, does she have enough time to make that up, Howard, or is she in trouble? Yeah, I think um, I think there's still time. I mean, you know, in my experience, 60 days, 50 some odd days is still an eternity in politics. Uh, you know, we're just past Labor Day. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, as we've seen some reporting from national news outlets over the last couple of weeks, of course, Democrats would love it if polls showed that uh, Kemp and Abrams were currently neck and neck. And I think that, you know, most folks that you talk to pay attention to this this, this world and who talk to folks 
on either camp think that Stacey's got ground to make up. But I don't think, you know, uh, any of us, Democrat or Republican, are resigned to the idea or the fact that this is a foregone conclusion. I think everyone's still expecting uh, this race to tighten and for it to be a nail biter come November. Jim, we're giving you the last word. Yeah. Uh, number one, uh, voter groups in Georgia are 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 el- relatively elastic until it comes to the final three or f- two or three weeks before an election, uh, and then they come home. So this eighty percent, I, I I would anticipate is going to going to grow a good bit. Uh, the other thing I would say is that it's not always it's. You know, it's 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 not. This may not be a matter of of whether Republicans can peel enough votes into their camp. Into their, in, uh, it's it's with 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 black male voters. You have a participation problem. They they don't they don't participate to the same degree that black women uh, do. And they they basically they stay home. They give it up. And so, so often it's it's not it's not the messaging; it's the the GOTV effort that that is that is going to to make the difference here. All right. Well, let's get to our final break. Stick around, and we'll be right back with more political rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. Let's jump right back into our discussion with the AJC's Tia Mitchell and Jim Galloway, Republican consultant Leo Smith, and Democratic consultant Howard Franklin. Um, Tia, I'd briefly like to mention the latest developments in the Fulton DA's investigation of uh, the 2020 elections. Yesterday, we found out that Bobby Christine, um, the former U.S. attorney, has been subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury. Um, he, of course, was the one who was appointed to um, replace B.J. Pack in the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, northern Georgia in January 2021. Um, we were sort of expecting it. We've known for a long time that she was interested in the tumult there. Um, but also, big question on the horizon, whether the D.A. wants to ultimately subpoena Donald Trump. Um, he's not the first president who would be subpoenaed, but obviously there are huge political implications and also practical ones if he's going to be fighting it. Yeah. And number one, I just got to give you a shout out, Tamar. You've been doing an excellent job, you know, following the special grand jury and all of these developments. Um, It's very well earned, the kudos. Um, you, you, You have outlined it perfectly. I think that, I think D.A. Willis would like the special grand jury to subpoena Donald Trump. You know, I think personally, like if she had her druthers and had a magic wand, but there are, it would be so risky just politically for the integrity of the investigation that there's so much to weigh when it comes to subpoenaing any former president, let alone this one. And so what they have to decide is, is the potential, and he's likely to fight it for years. And so it's like, is the not even the potential of his testimony, because I don't know, even if you subpoena him, he's going to plead the fifth. If you eventually subpoena him and go through all the appeals and go through all the red tape and finally make him sit down, then he gets to plead the fifth. So the risk here is like, is it worth just doing it because you think it's the right thing versus not doing it and avoiding all the headaches and the political of what happens. The Bobby Christine stuff is very interesting. You know, you noted in your article that the fact that he even was subpoenaed means the Department of Justice already said, yep, it's okay if he wants to answer some questions, go ahead. So that means it could be a little bit easier. Leo, weigh in here. I mean, look, is it Pollyannish to say that justice should be blind to politics? And that's where we are. I think that the VA has to pursue this situation with her legal acumen, her experience as a DA guiding her based on evidence and advisement and counsel that she's getting on whether or not a crime has been committed. If a crime has been committed that weakens our electoral process, that weakens our democratic republic, that decreases the trust of people, that the decrease in the trust is a sentimental thing more than a legal thing. But she's got to look at this thing not from a political lens, 
but from a whether or not a crime was done, and then make her moves accordingly. If she does anything but that, she's going to lose voters. I mean, it's not her job to protect the political system or to protect voters. And, I, and so I, I don't think that whether or not, you know, this puts Trump in a good position to run again in the future or not, that shouldn't be her concern at all. It might be my concern, but it isn't her concern. And, and I think she just needs to have a clear, justice-oriented position on this and only go with evidence. All right. Well, Leo, I would be remiss if we didn't spend the final minutes of the show discussing this new project you've been working on with the Carter Center called the Candidates Principles Initiative. Um, And I'll let you take it away in a minute, but let's kind of tee it up. It describes itself as, quote, a bipartisan effort to encourage candidates, political parties and voters to uphold five core doctrines of democratic elections, integrity, nonviolence, security, oversight and the peaceful transfer of power. Um, You guys are focusing this initial effort on swing states like Georgia, Florida, Arizona, Michigan. Um, Talk a little bit about the work you've been doing on that and uh, why you decided you wanted to work on it. Well, you know, for a long time, uh, I've been working on issues of creating resilience, both in Fortune 500 companies and universities. I used to be a consultant that dealt with changing demographics. Uh, uh, across America and how it impacts economically, um, spiritually, et cetera. And certainly, you know, America has been struggling with its definition of itself and what values it holds. And we saw the results of that, and not only in January 6th, but we've seen it in even, as we discussed today, how we've changed our attitudes about political spending and what's uh, acceptable and, and rhetorical balance and campaigning. And, you know, we saw even with Speaker Newt Gingrich and Bill Nygut sort of covered that subject, uh, how the change and the, the demeanor and the decorum in Congress has been something that's been slowly happening. Uh, this isn't new. Uh, you know, people start to lose trust in government institutions, and we see the impact of that. And that's what we are. The polling that we are both, um, you know, we are engaged with, with uh, public opinion strategies as one of very strong pollsters out there. We're doing a lot of focus groups. And Americans are very concerned, as, as Howard said earlier, about whether or not our democratic republic can be stood up and whether or not people will continue to have trust in our electoral process. So the Carter Center is the best organization, really. I mean, first of all, President Carter is our only president out of Georgia, but he's also been a president who's done the most on democracy around the world uh, than any other president. I mean, the Carter Center has been in 113 countries working on the electoral process. So it only makes sense that as America's uh, trends start to start looking like uh, other places, like Bosnia, like Libya, that we have to now turn our attention home. And the Carter Center... We gotta, we gotta end it there. I'm so sorry. We're we're getting into our last minutes of, of the show, um, but I understand you have an event with Bill Nygut on St. Simon's Island this Sunday, 1 p.m. at the historic Christ Church. The pastor yeah. says there's still room. This is all the time we have left. I'd like to thank our guests, Leo Smith, Howard Franklin, Tia Mitchell, Jim Galloway. I'd like to thank our producers, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, Jake Cook, and Victoria Evans Cash. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a great Friday. <laughs>